My name is Cindy, and this is the story of sex. In each episode of the story of sex, we explore the human experience of getting down and dirty, unpacking the hot topics you're afraid to discuss, and asking if two's company is three really a crowd. In this episode, we are discussing polyamory. Specifically, what is it? <laughs> um, I'm not a member of the polyamory community, um, which is sometimes called poly, better called polyam, out of respect for those with Polynesian heritage who use poly as an abbreviation. I have only participated in an open relationship, if you count dating men at the same time other women have, um, which is on the light end of the spectrum, the very light end. Um, I live in Portland, though, which, according to The Guardian, is the best place in America to have a polyamorous relationship. And I think a lot of people misinterpret polyamory. There's a confusion of terms. Um, Is polyamory the same as open? Is that the same as non-monogamous? Is polyamory just a cover term or a cop-out for cheating? Is polyamory just for people with huge libidos and low morals? Is polyamory antithetical to love? Is it something that only hippie people do in communes? Uh, What about polygamy? Is that the same thing? Is that what people are talking about? There's a lot of phrases and terms being thrown around and it gets confusing. Um, There's also this idea that only white hippies engage in this lifestyle or only hypersexual people do. Uh, For people who have been cheated on, it may sound like an especially weird thing and sensitive issue to choose to share, like, what the fuck? Um, Because non-monogamy is becoming a more common mainstream conversation featured in TV shows like House or Big Love or even the reality show Sister Wives, we're going to discuss it on this podcast. So usually I start this off with a personal connection. Before I start my story, I do think that I want to highlight one important fact, and the story highlights one important fact, that people who practice non-monogamy are just people. They can suck, they can be jealous, they can be immature, they can be great. Um, Polyamorous relationships are not exempt from things like intimate partner violence or unhealthy dynamics. Um, They're relationships just like any other relationship. And they can also be very loving and creative and healthy. Polyamory is not for everyone, but it really does work for some people. Um... But let's start my story. When I first came to Portland, I made this great friend. We'll call him Linus. Um, Linus is a lovely person. He's very intelligent and smart and witty. Linus went on existential crisis with me, walking around Portland and talking about books and literature and big ideas. Um, I really enjoyed our friendship, which was built on books and mutual respect and affection. I told Linus pretty much everything. When my friend died a sudden tragic death, when I was yelled at at work, When I finally discovered how to make vegan brownies, um, he heard my failures and my successes, and we would shoot ideas around about what it meant to be human in such an inhuman world. Um, He had a partner, so our friendship was strictly platonic, and when I say that, I mean, not bullshitting you, we didn't even hug. Like, it was very platonic. Um, I was raised religious, and I'm Latina, so I have, like, this huge boundary with people who have partners because I don't want anything to be misinterpreted. Um, then one day we're discussing whether his girlfriend is okay with him having dinner with me and he tells me that they're non-monogamous. I took it as Linus opening up and I thought maybe he'd want to be able to discuss it with me. So I went to the library and got a bunch of books and went online and looked up what the hell it meant to be in a non-monogamous relationship. Um, I had some friends in college who were open or who had non-monogamous relationships and I knew some basics like that each relationship had its own rules and definitions. Um, one of my friends was only allowed one day to go out in a don't ask, don't tell way. One of my friends only allowed 
threesomes and sex play but not dating. So I researched and then a week later something odd happened. My friend needed to catch an early flight, like 5 a.m. early. And me being me, completely idealistic and a complete and total nerd, naive to the ways of the dating world. Um, I invited him to crash on my couch so he could be closer since he lived a ways away from the airport and I live closer to the airport. I still had a lot of respect for his relationship and I didn't know the rules with his partner so I was not propositioning him in any way or form. I was offering a friendly couch. I didn't know the rules and I wasn't about to encroach on our friendship by introducing anything else than that. Well, this offer ruined everything. Um, Following our messaging, he said he'd meet me after work so I bounced away from my work thinking we're going to shell out details and where we're going to grab dinner and blah 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 blah. Nope. He told me that it's terribly exciting as it sounded. He and his partner had a world about being intimate with friends and he couldn't come over. And I was really stunned and completely flabbergasted. It was a very awkward conversation, which um, concluded with the confession of attraction. Um, I, my final thought was, I'm like, can we still be friends? Since apparently there's some crushing going on. And he said we could. Um, and don't get me wrong, Linus is very attractive. He has a sexy beard. Nice smile, very muscular legs, reads a lot of books. Um, yeah, the dude's hot. But th- I had shut up all of propriety, and this is a whole new development. And during that week, I analyzed myself, and I thought about what dating a guy who had a steady g- girlfriend would be like. Well, what would I be like? Would I be a concubine? Would I be? What would I be? What do you What do you call the number two? How would it be number one? I'm a competitive bitch. Anyway. Um, I thought we'd have more time to discuss all these details, but I was wrong. My friend's girlfriend was very upset that this conversation had happened at all. And my friendship with him ended suddenly and abruptly and painfully. And I was very angry and very hurt and incredibly disappointed because I believed in this liberal Portland hippie shit. And I thought non-monogamy was supposed to be like the maximum thing. And I had platonic friends. So how could it be that my Mormon friends were more open to the idea of sleeping on my couch than this? person in an open relationship um so my relationship my experience with polyamory was less than ideal um i don't blame my friend for establishing boundaries or his girlfriend for being jealous um i was just surprised by the shittiness of it all <laughs> and it, it made it more real for me because i'd only like seen it like from the outskirts and i was like oh this is i guess the human element of polyamory Um, So, with that in mind, let's delve deeper into what this lifestyle entails. So, first off, you might be thinking, is polyamory the same as polygamy? Is the same as open? Is it the same as cheating? Is it just lots of sex? Um, You haven't defined anything for me. So, some definitions, because it can get pretty confusing. Um, According to the experts, open is often used as a term to encapsulate anything not strictly monogamous. Um, Open includes swinging, threesomes, and usually encapsulates sexually physical things. According to Renee Devine, uh, LMFT and sex relationships therapist in Minneapolis, an open relationship is where one or both partners have a desire for sexual relationships outside of each other, and polyamory is about having intimate, loving relationships with multiple people. So it's one of those squares, a rectangle, but rectangle is not a square kind of things. Um, both open and poly relationships are from a consensual non-monogamy. And technically, polyamory can be a type of open relationship. But expectations tend to be different when it comes to these. 
um, polyamory tends to highlight a lot more of intimacy and love. Um, and there's not necessarily a relationship hierarchy. Someone could be a solo poly, meaning that they want to seek poly relationships whether they're dating anyone or not. Um, and they may enter into two separate relationships and view them both as equal. In their nature, poly relationships are open since they involve more than two people, but not all poly groups are looking to add more people to the dynamic and are not always actively dating. This is called closed poly because there's multiple relationships, but there's an expectation that no one involved is expanding this existing group. Cheating is not consensual. It is not a piece of consensual monogamy. So um, in open and in polyam relationships, conversations happen around consent and the extracurricular activities are done with partner approval. Polyamorous relationships do not have to be sexual at all. They could be romantic, sensual, or otherwise intimate. Um, polygamy is having multiple wives. Polyandry is having multiple husbands. This is common around the world and throughout history. And we're going to touch base on this a little bit because U.S. society tends to be entrenched in Puritan and Eurocentric values. Um, even love and sex are capitalistic enterprises with value and exchange. And um, in the Bible which even if you don't believe in the Bible is unfortunately um, a really significant um, contributor to a lot of the existing laws that we have in the United States. Um, there's actually a lot of polyamory. There's polygamy, there's adultery, there's basically a soap opera. In fact, in, there's a Latin soap opera called the Ten Commandments, una telenovela. Um, so King Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines, while his father King David had multiple wives, including Abigail and Bathsheba, mother of Solomon. Um, Jacob, father of Joseph from the Technicolor Dream Coat, for all you agnostic, secular, Gentile people who love Broadway, um, had multiple wives and concubines. And even Abraham, who's the father of three major religions, um, had a wife and a concubine, Hagar, who mothered Ishmael. Um, one of the problems is that the Bible shows us how to do polyamory and, poly and polygamy wrong, which is why society tend to think of it as an inherently negative thing. A lot of the people in the Bible were fighting about who was the best wife, who was the most important wife. There's a very clear hierarchy involved. Um, a lot of the people did bad things. There's like manipulation and deceit. And again, not to say that polyamory relationships are perfect, but it tends to be a Bible tends to be a case study of all the things not to do within a polyamory or open relationship. Um, there's a lot of cheating, which is not the same thing as polyamory, but it tends to be like kind of thrown in there. Um, this feeds into why polygamy is outlawed. So often when people think about polygamy, they think about Mormons. Um, Mormons do not currently practice polygamy. Only the fundamentalist Mormons do, which are split and not recognized by the official Mormon church. But um, polygamy was a, was, is the reason that Utah could not become a state. And um, when the Mormon church gave up polygamy, it was to gain statehood. It was a pretty significant part of their teachings, and they removed it to be recognized as a state. Um, this wasn't to white people in the U.S., but polygamy exists worldwide and is permitted in many religions and in many places. Uh, Native American tribes in the U.S. previously had polygamy and polyamory. Um, and in the modern world, Africa and Asia still have places with legal polygamy. Um, one of the most notable people with multiple wives was Genghis Khan, who had so many children that one in 200 men within the Mongol Empire today is related to him. So the reaches of polyamory and polygamy are very long-standing. Um, so a lot of people think that polyamory is antithetical to love because they think that it's, um, the humans are naturally monogamous. So let's talk about the word natural for a minute, and I'm going to tell you something my professor told us a lot um, in my undergrad. And something that exists in nature or is 
considered natural does not imply a moral value of it being good or bad or morally just. It's a common misconception that occurs that because something occurs in nature, it has to have a moral value. So actually, humans are rarely mono- like truly monogamous. Monogamy would mean to have one partner for your entire life. Um, if you broaden that, that to include like intimacy, it'd be to have one intimate partner, which includes like cuddling or other things for your entire life. So people who cheat, people who break up with their partners, people who've had multiple partners do not ascribe to true monogamy. Um, Christopher Ryan, who's a PhD and author of Sex at Dawn, How We Mate, Why We Strain, What It Means for Modern Relationships, says that humans did not evolve to be sexually monogamous species because we rarely have one partner our entire life. Um, we tend to have serial partners. Stephanie Kuntz, um, a professor of history and family studies at Evergreen State College, says that humans weren't necessarily meant to be monogamous or polyamorous. We have impulses towards both, and our culture dictates our ultimate decisions regarding them. And Elizabeth Sheff, author of The Polyamorous Next Door, says that monogamy takes so many social structures to exist, it can't be naturally occurring and inherent, like blinking or wanting to speak to our children. It says it's more natural for humans to want a personal harem, so each of us gets to enjoy sexual variety, but insists on sexual exclusivity for our lovers so we don't have to deal with jealousy or the like evolutionary anthropological implications of investing in children that are not yours. Um, one reason that I'm interested in this topic and that I think it's really important is what polygamy says about our ideas of relationships because um, I was trying to be an ethics minor and there's this class called Philosophy of Love and Sex and it talks about how ownership is considered part of a relationship because possession is considered to be part of love. And um, it's a debate about how we value ourselves as two pieces of a whole and how we seek um, one other person to be our entire fulfillment. And it's really interesting to examine your own beliefs about how you feel about polyamory because it has a lot of questions. Um, I had to think a lot of this when I met Linus. We had this discussion that why was I personally opposed to polyamory? Was it because of my religious beliefs? If that was my only reason, I had to think about people that did it for religious beliefs. Like, um, how does that contradict? I mean, originally in the Bible, the entire Old Testament is filled and littered with polygamy, polyamory, you know, affairs. Like, possession is nine-tenths of the law, right? So we had to think, I had to think about the legal implications of being involved with something that has such a negative connotation as polyamory. Um, there's this unhealthy idea that we must be all things to one person. Um, we can be many things to one person, but we cannot be all things. And there's a lot of, um, our guest speaker has this Tumblr called Poly Role Models, which encompasses a lot of different um, people within the community. Um, and one of the memes on there is how friendship, people are always opposed to polyamory, but they have a lot of friendships. And you love your friends. Um, well, hopefully you love your friends. And you share pieces of yourself with your friends that maybe you don't share with your partner because maybe you love hiking and your partner detests outdoors so you go hiking with your friend Janie and you don't share that part of yourself necessarily with your partner um but you usually have a history like I've had friends that I've had since I was seven years old and obviously they've shared a lot more of my history than partners that I've had for six months so it's also like the intimacy and that's a really interesting perspective when I was doing research about thinking you can love multiple people without it detracting from your initial relationship. And it's just like a thought exercise if you're not involved in polyamory, or even if you are. Um, the book that I read that I keep recommending is because 
I'm not really interested in polyamory, but it definitely raised a lot of questions to have with the partner. And much like like SNM, just a conversation about sex and relationships and what you expect um, from a relationship is really interesting to have with yourself and with your partners. Um, sometimes some people, like, there's discussion to what is cheating. Um, like, obviously, Linus's girlfriend thought that we were getting to a point where we were being too intimate, like emotionally intimate, um, even though we didn't cross any lines. And some people consider that cheating. Other people are like, oh, you can fine do that as long as you don't do any touching. So it's it's a lot of definitions you have to do for yourself. So to help us navigate this conversation, we're going to talk to Kevin Patterson, author of Love is Not Colorblind, to hear about what it's like to be a member of this community in this day and age. Hi, Kevin. Thanks for talking to us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, one of the reasons we wanted you on this podcast was to talk about your book, Love is Not Colorblind. And can you tell us a little bit about what inspired you to write that book or what conversations prompted that novel? Well, um, as you said, I'm, I'm an active person in the local polyamory community. I live in the Philadelphia area. And when I really found myself in the, uh, in the community originally, I felt like I was one of very few people of color, very few black people who were, um, who were attending events on a regular basis. So I just started talking about it. I started talking about it more as like, just to sort of hear people's reactions, to spark whatever little bit of change I could, to find fellowship where I could. And um, a friend and partner of mine uh, had told me that I should be speaking about this kind of stuff like in educational spaces. and. So I started signing up for like conferences like that were centered around polyamory and relationships and sex ed. And I'd find myself as like one of very few people talking about polyamory or one of very few people of color talking about polyamory. And like we were out there, but it seemed like we were sort of few and far between, at least at the time. And then it was suggested that I write a book about about like polyamory stuff. And I had a different idea. And somebody and um my publisher, Thorn Tree Press, they were like, Well, we we've heard about this um race and polyamory workshop you've been, that you've been pushing around. Is there a chance that you could write a book about that? And so I just went for it. I took the, the workshop that I had been doing uh, around the country and I just started flushing it out, making it um making it realer. And next thing you know, Love Not Colorblind came out. And it's been pretty well received. Yeah, I think it's a great book. Um, I talked about it previously on our podcast when we talked about uh, racially based sexual stereotypes. I really like the way that you explained that when people make the statement, I'm not attracted to the, that race or X race, um, how people say that so nonchalantly, so glibly, and it has such a profound impact on members of that community. Yeah. And a lot, and the people who say that, they they try to say it as if it as if it's not a malicious thing, but like the way we form attractions is is around like perceived social social status. Um, there's a lot of like research surrounding that, and so if you're seeing somebody and automatically like your first um your first instinct is this person's unattractive, and like that spreads out across an entire race. There's more going on there than just a matter of who you want to date and who you want to sleep with. And that's not something that's going to be limited to 
who you want to date or who you want to sleep with. There's, you know, that's that's kind of bias that mm-hmm. blocks your dating. That's going to impact you at work. It's going to impact you at your, um, you know, at your school or like, uh, you know, if you're, you know, God forbid you're uh, someone in the medical profession or in education or in law enforcement, you know, or in finance, that's going to impact the way that you um, engage with people of other races. And it's going to, I mean, in the, in the, at least in those cases, it's going to impact their lives. Yeah, that's very true. Um, in your book, you talk a little bit about how polyamory is often considered like a white people thing and how there is a certain level of privilege because you have to have the time, the money, the resources to be able to do that. And you also mentioned some solutions. Um, can you talk about that a little bit more f- about the intersection of that for people who don't know? Yeah, like I've really tried to, to, to lean into uh, uh, solutions in the book because like it gets really easy to just sort of point fingers and, and assign blame. And granted, like that's that's valid too. But I wanted to make sure that I said like, hey, this is the way you can write the ship if you desire to do so. Um, a lot of it ends up being sort of representational, like uh, polyamory as is viewed as white people think. But like, there's also the fact that Polyamory requires resources, um, and it's not always financial, but it always sort of leads to the financial. Like polyamory requires time. Polyamory requires like uh, bandwidth. It requires um, a lot of times it just flat out requires money, and all of that is going to be an additional burden if you are part of a race, if you are part of a people who are traditionally overburdened by class, you know. The average, like the average white family versus the average non-white family in terms of uh, uh, household income, is it's a big disparity. It's a huge disparity, and like the amount of money that creates that disparity, that can be used for a lot of things that would aid polyamory. Like that could be used for additional rooms so that your partners aren't tripping all over one another. It can be used to attend more events. It can be used to travel more. Like I've got partners that I only get to see at best once a year because traveling is is really difficult, you know. If you've got if you've got the money, you can make that happen. And like polyamory doesn't have to be a money thing. Like you don't have to like go on vacations to Hawaii with every single person that you're dating all of the time. But in America, in a capitalist society, if what you're doing isn't making you money, it's costing you money one way or the other. And that, and if you're if, if if you've got that as a a standard burden over you, your polyamory is going to be made correspondingly more difficult. Um, do you have like a polyamorous origin story or like a moment that you knew? There was a different. There was an article written by a different polyamorous person where they said that as a kid they were reading this fairy tale and there were these two princes that were fighting over a princess, and he was like seven years old and he was like why can't she just marry both i mean they have a castle they have enough room she should just marry them both um yeah yeah so i was visiting toronto and this is 17 years ago first weekend in august uh toronto has a big festival called caravan and it's one of the biggest west indian festivals in the world and my family is from jamaica so like i I have an affinity for it um i used to go up there with my friends all the time like a, a group of guys that i went to college with and then one year like all the guys I used to make that trip with, they were all doing other things. Like, you know, one was back in home in California. One was going to school in 
in, in Connecticut. One was doing this, one was doing that. So I ended up making the trip with a couple of friends and like this new, this new person I just started dating and one of her best friends. And I sort of made a joke that like something might pop off, like, you know, something, something wild might happen. A lot of sexually active young people drinking, smoking, partying, anything could happen. Right. Mm -hmm. And I, and I was just joking. Like, I didn't expect anything to happen because I'm a regular guy and extraordinary stuff doesn't happen to me. And next thing you know, like, I'm rolling around with this new girlfriend and her best friend. You know, and the monogamous wiring was so strong that, like, I knew that this was going to break the relationship. I knew it. Mm -hmm. I was like, there's no way this is a good thing. There's no way this adds any value. But because I'm never, ever going to have an opportunity to have a threesome again in my life. I have to go for this so I'll have the story to tell for the rest of my life, even if it busts up one of the best relationships I've ever been in. And it just didn't do that. Instead, like, it prompted a lot of conversations about exclusivity and about what we really wanted out of the relationship and whether or not, like, exclusivity was important to us in that way. And it wasn't. So wow. instead of breaking up that relationship, it ended up improving that relationship. I'm still in that relationship. I'm married to that relationship. And the best friend who who came out with us to Toronto, like she was at my book signing last night because she's still a valued friend. Like we're, you know, we're going out partying next month. I was a cishet black dude telling my friends, other cishet black dudes, this wild, sexy story, you know, the, the, the stereotypical locker room talk. And one of my friends was like, you know, this is going to end poorly, right? And I knew he was right when he said it. Mm -hmm. And... Last year, I was speaking at Fieldmore in uh, in Oakland, promoting uh, "Love's Not Colorblind," and my friend showed up to that to that uh, to the signing, and I pointed him out in the crowd, and I was like, "Yeah, that brother said this was going to end poorly, and here we are." He laughed, and like the crowd laughed, and you know, and and it, it was a good moment because we we couldn't have foreseen it. Like I was shocked that I was a guy who had threesome back then, and. Now I'm a guy who writes relationship books and travels the country talking about them. I couldn't have predicted this at all. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. So before we move on um, to our next topic, how do you define polyamory? Um, because I do think that some people define it in different ways. And like I, I use sort of the boiled down definition, which is like the desire, the ability to the practice of being in multiple uh romantic and or sexual relationships uh with the willingness consent and um and sort of knowledge of everybody involved i think like you said most of the presentation of people have a polyamory is like threesomes and orgies when that's not necessarily part of it um when i asked people what they would want to at, to learn from an expert or have me ask um one of the questions was how to have an orgy and i was like that that's not polyamory there have been shows that that have that have uh, that have tried to showcase, and they're always written. They're always written or scripted or filmed or created by monogamous people who are sort of looking for the salacious uh, freak show. Mm -hmm. um, like I'm really critical of polyamory, married and dating. It's not on anymore. It's only like two seasons, but like it was mostly thin, traditionally attractive white cisgender, able-bodied. Uh, neuro, you know, neurotypical uh, or presumably neurotypical white folks and like really trashy situations like there was really coercive really toxic situations 
and they'd break those up with like softcore sex scenes. That's sort of what our representation looks like a lot of the time. Like when it comes to um, when it comes to like mainstream media. Like what I would want to see is more more of it just sort of in there without it being the story. Um, like uh, there was polyamory in um, House of Cards when when that show was still on, and mm-hmm. It wasn't the story. The story was about like these two political sharks, but also some polyamory happened. Um, uh, my, I, 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 alongside a, a love's not colorblind, I write some superhero novels, and those are like queer polyamorous superhero novels centering people of color. But like, even though like those are the identities, those identities aren't the story. The story is like you know. Good versus evil. Friends become foes. Foes become friends. You know, like the characters are at least partially driven or at least partially motivated by what's happening in terms of identity, you know? Yeah. So like this person who's going to rob a bank, they're still going to rob a bank. But like, it, you know, they, but they but they got to stop. They got to stop and get their hair done first because that's the thing, you know? And yeah. like that's, that's not an actual thing that happens in the book. But like that's sort of how it, you know, like. The, the characters are informed by their particular uh, identities, and we wanted to make sure that we were doing that. Like um, the book that we just put out last month, uh, for higher audition, audition stars a, a a trans woman, but like we're not doing like a trans girl pain narrative. It's not you know her dealing with. It's not a coming out story. It's her trying to make a life. You know, she's a barista whose life just sort of didn't go where she wanted it to go. And she's trying to pull herself out of out of a out of a funk, and also her being a trans woman factors into what's going on with her life. You know. Well, speaking about identities, um, you mentioned in your book that sometimes when when people say that they're polyamorous, that becomes like the one defining trait, the one thing that people see. So, what's the proper etiquette for people to engage in this conversation with um, polyamorous people? I mean, for for me. Um, the ideal way to ask questions is to just hang out with me and like, let me answer my own questions. If, if it matters, mm-hmm. like if I'm like, Hey, let's hang out and watch Die Hard while watching Die Hard and seeing John McClane dealing with his wife, I might have an interesting anecdote about how, you know, about my life that somehow reflects my polyamory. You're going to learn more about me from that than you are like asking me a bunch of like random questions, you know, like, we all have more more in common than we have like separate, you know. Like my yeah. my life my life looks like everybody's life. Like hanging out on the couch, watching Netflix, playing video games, going to events, you know, helping kids with homework. It's just I do it with more partners. You talked about your kids a little bit in your book. Um, you mentioned that you have some of your girlfriends visit, and I think that for a lot of people, the quote unquote alternative lifestyle is not associated with having a family. Um, how would you like this conversation to expand on a societal level? Because we seem to have this very like heteronormative nuclear family, um, a leave it to beaver kind of family. I used to watch leave it to beaver way back <laughs> in the, when I was a young man. Um, yes. the thing about it is like, I feel like we need more representation in general of like just random shit because like there's, there is, um, representation of monogamous couples doing all of the things. You know, and which is the same thing that polyamorous polyamorous folks do. But like, when people want to see polyamory, that the, the it boils down to the question of, okay, but who's sleeping with who? You know, 
when mm-hmm. that's not really what polyamory is about. Like some people aren't sleeping with anybody. Like asexual polyamorous exists, you know, but like mm-hmm. it gets irksome when somebody thinks my, my life is a 24 seven orgy. And like my polyamory is pretty sexual. I have my fair share of orgies, but like, I'm an outlier, you know, I'm not the rule. I'm an exception, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and people don't think about it that way. People think about it like, oh, well, this must be a sex thing. If you're polyamorous around your kids, are you having sex in front of your kids? No. Like I'm raising my kids with more, with more, with more, with more responsible adults. That's, that's about it. You know, mm-hmm. um, I wasn't home yesterday to help my kids with their, uh, with their homework, but I had a partner who was here. My partner helped, uh, help the kids with their homework. It probably did a better job than I would, but that's not going to sell newspapers. It's interesting enough having a chart of your partners. If you're trying to boil it down to who's sleeping with who, what's not interesting is having a chart of your partners based on who's, who's sharing which streaming service password with who. Whose Google calendars do you have access to? Like, there was a point where, like, my my Google calendar looked like a bowl of Fruit Loops because, like, my stuff was in red and my wife's stuff was in green and my girlfriend's stuff was in blue and my other girlfriend's stuff was in purple and I'm sharing all of these Google calendars and everything looks wild and like my kid like my kids' events are in yellow so like I've got to map out my Google calendar with like push pins and uh, and uh, and yarn tied to a wall like a conspiracy theorist board. Again, that doesn't sell banners, banner ad space. So instead it's like, but who's sleeping with who? Because that sells. So I know I have um, a lot of friends who are single parents. Um, do you have the same kind of discussions about when to introduce people to your kids? Um, a lot of friends are like, oh, I wouldn't do it unless I was serious. Um, what are kind of, what kind of discussion do you have around that? I mean, everybody's got to do it their own way to their own level of comfort. And it's not my place to tell anybody how, how they're supposed to do it. Um, but like, I come from a culture of like, um, of having people around growing up. I always had like an aunt or an uncle who was fresh off the boat, trying to find their way in America, who was sleeping in the basement or, you know, there was always a family member over, there was always something happening. And that just didn't go away with me. So my kids are used to us having people in the house. They know mommy and daddy have a lot of friends and Mm -hmm. At some point, they'll pick up on the familiarity, but it's not something that we hide. But it's also not something we, you know, we 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 force on them. Like I don't sit my, you know, my kids down and say like, "This is Daddy's new boyfriend. This is who I'm dating." You know, like no, like mm-hmm. I'll just say like, they'll be like, "Hey, is anybody coming over?" I'm like, "Yeah, you know, my friend so and so is coming over." I'm like, "Oh, okay, we, we like this person. You know, we're gonna invite mm-hmm. them to the tea party." I'm like, cool, you do that. That's cool that they have um, more responsible adults in their lives to give them new perspectives. Um, I work at a clinic and I've worked at several different clinics, um, including an HIV clinic. And from my experience, the HIV clinic was the only place that didn't quantify patient sex lives. Um, I've met a lot of people and seen a lot of people be treated like they only have sex in one way. They're straight, they're monogamous. They only do one position missionary and they... It only lasts five minutes and that's it. And this is actually kind of dangerous because it contributes to antibiotic resistant infections. It contributes to um, a lack of awareness about people's sex lives. And um, I mean, even just the P test that they give you a lot of the time doesn't capture all like 
pharyngeal or throat infections and rectal infections. But um, I've met some some of my friends who are polyamorous. They tell me that when they go to the doctor, they um, they the doctor makes them feel bad or they get shamed or they get um, made to feel uncomfortable for their lives that they're living. Um, how do you work with this or how do you talk to your doctor about it or do you just skim over it? Do you not share it with your doctor? It really depends on like region. It really depends on the individual. Like I've heard those stories too. People saying that they were shamed of her polyamory for one one way or the other. I'm lucky in that I've that's never happened with me. I'm I'm also a giant of a human who towers over all of my doctors. So <laughs> it's very possible that they didn't shame me for, for fear of getting fucked up. Um but like I'm really open and honest about it. I'm like, you know, I'm I'm polyamorous. I have a a, a great number of, of partners. Um like my my crotch can be a high traffic area at times. And so when I ask for the test that I want, they don't argue with me about it. They just give me the test that I'm looking for. And a lot of times like a lot of times uh just for convenience, I'll I'll forego the doctors and just go get like STI screenings like I'm in the city of Philadelphia. The uh, the health services center here um, has like a free has a, a free um, free STI screening um, some mornings, and like I'll take some time off of work, go get my screening uh, first thing in the morning, and have that done. I do that every like um, three to six months, depending on like um, like changes in partnerships and such. So um, is there, I know that there's a like Yelp or directory that helps trans and LGBTQ people find um, like doctors or lawyers or therapists who are competent in their care and um, like, like specialized issues that they have or um, more like culturally competent care. Is there a similar like directory for polyamorous people? The closest thing that I, that I'm aware of is uh NCSF, National Coalition for Sexual Freedom, has what they have, uh, call their CAP list, and that's uh, kink-aware professionals. And it's called kink-aware professionals, but it branches out past kink. Like, it also en- encompasses, like, uh, polyamory and swinging and such. And um, what they have there are, like, uh, therapists and lawyers and so on who are, who are well-versed in um, in alternative lifestyles, uh, 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 alternative relationship styles. It's a good resource to have in your back pocket. Like maybe you won't need it, but maybe you'll run into someone who does. And so just having that that cap list from NCSF is a good is a is a good look to have. Lastly, um, what is one misconception that you hear a lot, or one conversation that you have a lot that you wish you didn't, or what's just one thing that you would like um, monogamous people or our listeners overall to come away with from this conversation that we're having right now? Um. I would say that, like, people should study polyamory in general. Like, even people with absolutely zero interest in polyamory, um, like, people who are, like, monogamous and avowed monogamous, I'd say study it because, like, there are aspects of polyamory that would benefit monogamy. That would would benefit monogamy. Like, I I brought up Google Calendars before. Like, Mm -hmm. between, like, Google Calendars and emotional literacy and like certain communication styles like my polyamory requires that like i can't i can't skimp on any of those things and have successful relationships if i'm not communicating my needs if i'm not managing my emotions properly um 
my relationships collapse and I and communities are small enough that if my relationships collapse, maybe they don't recover. But like I know a lot of monogamous folks that don't require that, but it would benefit their relationships anyway. Um, when I was monogamous, I don't remember ever having a conversation about exclusivity. It wasn't like, what are we doing here? What do we want to make this relationship? It was just, we're on the relationship escalator. You know, we're dating, we're going steady. One day we'll get engaged, get married, have kids, you know, and, and so on. But the second I, I, I felt found myself in non-monogamy, we had to have a lot of conversations about exclusivity. We had to have conversations about what cheating would look like. We had to get have a lot of conversations about what our expectations were. And most of my monogamous friends, including myself when I was monogamous forever ago, I didn't have any of those conversations in any relationship I was in. I don't know anybody who really does, monogamous-wise. So just understanding the kind of things that polyamorous relationships require and incorporating those things into your monogamous relationship, that's just got to be a good look. So hopefully, throughout this episode, you've gathered some new perspective on polyamory. The good, the bad, the ugly, the things you might be able to use in your own heteronormative monogamous relationship. Um, or maybe now you decide you want 1,000 wives and concubines just for funsies. You're like, you know what? This episode inspired me. I want to do this. Um, I hope that you do research for yourself and have that conversation with yourself and with other people. And I personally don't know that I could do polyamory because I have a hard enough time paying attention to one person, much less two or five or 35. Um, also, I'm a jealous bitch. I get very Cardi B on people. So don't know that's in the cards for me, but maybe it could work for you. Um, I do hope at the very least that this episode helps reduce some of the stigma that people have either coming out as polyamorous or venturing into that lifestyle or um, having that conversation. was produced by Adam Caswell with music by Blue Dot Sessions. Find more of the music at www.sessions.blue. Special thanks to Kevin Patterson for being on the show today. Um, links to his books and website can be found at our website, soundcloud.com slash the story of sex. Additional show notes and resources can also be found at this website. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Play, or wherever you find podcasts. And don't forget to share the show with your friends. Word of mouth is the best way for a community to grow. Tell us your feedback and fun sex stories at thestoryofsex at gmail.com and I may just read it on air. Until next time, I'm Cindy. Thanks for listening. People in your free my soul, I'm gonna get lost in the rock and roll.